Closer, the podcast focused on discussing design's role in tackling complex societal issues. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. In this episode, we speak with Randall Plunkett, who is also Lord Dunsany of Dunsany Land and Meath, an area 50 miles northwest of Dublin City in Ireland. Randall's family are deeply entrenched in my own personal upbringing and childhood, as a great-great-great-great-great-great-uncle of Randall's was Oliver Plunkett, who was brutally murdered by Oliver Cromwell in 1681, and whose head is still in display in one of the churches in the town where I grew up, Drogheda. Randall is one of the last bloodlines of Oliver Plunkett, so it's been great uh, to connect and hear the stories about his own childhood and his own upbringing. I recently spotted an interview with Randall in the Guardian newspaper in the UK where he was interviewed about one of the largest rewilding projects that I'd ever heard of, which is part of his 1,700-acre estate. In the conversation, we speak about what led Randall to take the leap into rewilding, how it was perceived amongst his family and community, and most importantly, what happened to the land as the years went by. We speak about the darker side of life as a lord, who is responsible for not only maintaining the estate, but protecting it for future generations, both from environmental damage and decay, but also from human damage of the land, and hunters who have now come to prey on the animals who have returned to the Dunsany estate and reserve. It's a really good one, so let's jump straight in. Randall, very warm welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. I, um, I've been researching... Dunsany for the last uh, couple of weeks and uh, I'm, I'm delighted to finally have you on the podcast but for people who aren't aware of um, Randall Plunkett um, do we do we call you Randall or do we say Lord Dunsany which which do you prefer? Well this is a republic so we'll go with Randall. <laughs> okay we'll go with Randall okay. You, you, can go, you can go with something a bit worse if you like. <laughs> we'll go with Randall let's start off and maybe tell me a little bit more around uh, both what you do creatively, but also where you're based in Ireland and what, what the topic of today is. So I'm a filmmaker um, from County Meath. Uh, the accent probably is going to make you not believe me, but, but, I, but I am a filmmaker. I'm Irish. And uh, I come from a, a, an old, old Norman family, and we have an estate here that's about 1,700 acres and I am, apart from a, being a filmmaker, I'm a heavy, heavy uh, advocate of rewilding. And I have been rewilding uh, quite a large section of my farmland because I am very, very uh, concerned with what I'm seeing, not just in Ireland, but worldwide, where we celebrate our culture, we celebrate our history, but we are absolutely are decimating our uh, yeah. ecological history and our ecological um well, basically, to be perfectly honest with you, our environment, which is the most important part of our history. One of our life. Can I just uh, yeah. drill a little bit more into, you mentioned there you're from a, a Norman family back in, it was back a long time, maybe nearly a thousand years in Ireland. Is that right? Yeah, 900. 900 years. So for about that. Whenever we were speaking beforehand, um, we were talking about Oliver Plunkett. And I'm originally from Drogheda, where, where I grew up. And Oliver Plunkett, uh, his head was in uh, one of the churches in the town. And it's amazing to finally connect, you know, what's something that I grew up with. Oliver Plunkett was was sacred and we used to go in and visit him when we were in school and, and so forth. But you're the last, well, one of the last bloodlines for Oliver Plunkett in the country. Is that right? That's, that's, well, I'd probably be the closest living relative at this mm. point because 
Um, you know, he was killed. And, and bear in mind, I, I should say to the people of Drawhead, I want my head back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, uh, joking aside. No, um, the thing is, obviously, we're we're that line. Um, he was my great, 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 couple more greats uncle. Okay. Um, so so he died. Um, we're the last. We're the oldest family still associated with one place. So we're we're, the, we're pretty much the oldest family in Ireland now. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is that, yeah, no, he was a, a great pioneer and he really was a very brave and courageous guy. And uh, unfortunately, like great people, he often they often don't end up with a good situation and he didn't end up with the best situation. Thus, his head still being there in Drogheda today. Yeah. Oliver Cromwell was responsible for his death, correct? Am I right? That's correct. Uh, and I'll give you a little caveat. He looks a bit like my dad as well, even though the head is rotten and the skin's peeling off. My dad <laughs> had the same bone structure as that. And, and I'm often accused of looking fairly like him because I'm beardy and I got long hair as well. Wow. Yeah. Well, look, so you're living on an estate that's quite large. It's 1,700 acres, which is probably um, not too dissimilar to the same size as the Phoenix Park. Is that right? I think it's about 17. Well, I can't tell you exactly how big the Phoenix Park is, but... Uh, it's pretty big. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very large. It's very large. And the thing is, we, we rewilded about a third of it. Wow, so, okay. And then the other, the other part of it is farmed, and the, the farming pays for the rewilding. We're, yeah. We don't exist because of any government or grant or program. We exist because I decided to take, take my own steps to improve a world that I inhabit. Okay. And the, the problem is with, with everything is if you wait for governments, if you wait for the crowd, we'll never achieve anything. Unfortunately, mm. when it comes to radical changes like environment, I feel it needs to be done on a grassroots level. It's everybody's problem. Everybody's got to do their bit. I just had the mechanism to do a bit more. Yeah. And thus I decided to make that, even though I took a lot of personal losses because I can guarantee mm. you, if you start rewilding when there's no money and there's no, you're losing money and I lose roughly about 20 to 25% of my income per wow. year okay. as a result of it. But I, I do it proudly because to be honest, we are a civilization, especially in Ireland, that have gone through a lot of losses we've been taken advantage of, but we have no excuses anymore hmm. for, for the decisions that we're making. We have no one to blame but ourselves. So I'm going to do something about it because... To be perfectly honest with you, it needs to happen, should have happened 30 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just ask you a little bit more around the, the journey um, to to rewilding? Um, what was happening on the land before that? And what was your journey, your personal journey to make that decision of saying, I'm going to try this? I'm keen to understand so, that backstory. Yeah, so, so let me first explain a little bit about the land, because I think your listeners, if you haven't traveled to, to this part of me, County Me, County Kildare, Dublin, that's the most valuable land in the country today. Mm. Um, it's very, very, very fertile land. In fact, mm. my farm is probably one of the most valuable farms in the country. It's big. There's huge fields. The land is, is very dry. It's slightly, it's not rocky. It's slightly hilled. The light hits it all day long. It is the best Absolutely. sort of farm in the area, really, and especially with the size and scale. Yeah. Um, so. In the old days, my grandfather uh, was one of the biggest cattle farmers in the country. Hmm. And he had, I think, well over a thousand heads of cattle in Whoa. the 70s. And, and back back there before you had the single farm payments, that was pretty colossal. In fact, yeah. he used to supply Afghanistan and helped. I suppose it was the era of Goodman, who's our who's the hmm. most well-known sort of meat, meat guy, uh, 
So those of your listeners who don't know who he is, he would be the guy who's probably the biggest. He's the Trump of meat factories in Ireland. Yeah. That'd be the best way to describe him. And yeah. like Trump, I think he has a slightly prickly personality yeah. that doesn't bode well with everybody. Um, and the thing is, so my grandfather would have been probably one of his main suppliers at the time. Mm. And then obviously he became huge and outgrew everybody. Yeah. Uh, but my grandfather was roughly pulling out over a thousand cattle a year out of this place. Wow. Um, and that was before subsidies. So he was a, a colossal farmer. Um, now, when I took over, it took a little bit. We tried a few things. We wanted to try organic, but with a farm this scale, we couldn't We couldn't sort of just grab the, the bull by the horns altogether because it would be a disaster. Hmm. So we were leasing part of it. We were trying organic farming. We were trying cattle, then sheep. We worked really hard, didn't make a huge amount of money, and we not, none of us enjoyed it. We None of us appreciated the animal cruelty side of it particularly because – there was a lot of examples where you know we received cattle and they were bleeding from the head because they were dehorned late and all this kind of like stuff mm. that doesn't go monitored, but stuff that actually happens constantly in practice here. Yeah, we weren't happy with that. And then on top of that, we were not happy with the use of chemicals and uh, fertilizers and like uh, anti-fungus stuff and like weird worming medicines. Mm. And it was having an effect on the land. And I had a conversation with my dad back in the day and he, he i you know he used to tell me about all these stories that my great grandfather and him had where he would go around and he'd shoot snipe now i didn't I, I didn't know what snipe was i was like what the hell is snipe he said it's a really strange little bird that used to hang around the wetlands hmm. and you know i asked him and, and he talked to me about a bunch of other animals like the partridge like the you know corn crack and a whole bunch of others and i said you know how come there are none of those animals anymore he said, well, that's the, I suppose that's the cost of progress. And that stuck with me. And I thought to myself, well, that, well that's, excuse my language, that's bullshit. Yeah. Um, because firstly, who, you know, there's money is important, making a living. We all got to pay a mortgage. But we shouldn't be destroying the environment. We, we can work better than destruction. You yeah. know, we can work with the land and make money. You don't have, you don't have to be a horrible person to make money. And you don't have to destroy the rainforest to do that. And I kind of thought that. And we tried at first to try and just do it better. Mm-hmm. And then with all this, I finally decided, you know, I had enough. I wanted to see – I wanted the wildlife back. And I was working on – I was very inspired by the things I was seeing. And I was writing a script at the time. And and those who don't know, I, I when I write scripts, I do something called method writing. Mm-hmm. So it's a variation of method acting. And method acting is when an actor – will live the role that they are playing. Yeah. So the famous one who does it is Daniel Day-Lewis, who yeah. is so intolerable and nearly got divorced uh, because he plays, you know, he tends to play shitesters all the time. Yeah. And I'm sure his wife and kids had had enough of him. Yeah. But I do it with writing. So I obsess over topics. I I live through things. I, I constantly uh, will, will do micro habits that my characters do so I can sort of feel and understand where their mind is at. And then I put it into writing. And the one film I was writing was an environmental horror where it was basically dystopian, where basically people have vanished from the, from, from the landscape. Hmm. And, you know, the first question I had for myself is, well, what would the landscape look like? Yeah. You know, what would happen? And so with this and this idea that I was wanting a different, should we say, um, I wanted to do something different with the land. I hadn't quite perfected what that was going to be, but I knew I wanted to do some preser- uh, some conservation work. 
Hmm. And I wasn't sure about how to go about it. I'm not a scientist. I had no experience in any of this. And in fact, I was going to lose a lot of money. And I had to say to my parents, sorry, my mom at the time, uh, yeah, we're going to do this new venture. It's not going to pay. Uh, there's no prospects for money as yet. We might get lucky in the future. Yeah. And then, oh, by the way, uh, we're losing money every year. And I had to say that to my mom, and we tried it. And the first year, things were interesting. Grass got better. We got a lot of extra insects. Yeah. Second year, we had a lot more of everything. Third year, things became quite, quite different. I started seeing birds that i never seen before. And then everything just became more and more outrageous. Things became growing. Uh, animals returned at record levels. And suddenly, I was living in a zoo. Suddenly, I couldn't go walking without seeing something. Mm. There's lots of stuff there that I want to talk about. Like the, the volume of, of insects that you mentioned. Um, I remember as a child, we, we grew up in a, in a similar area in Ireland. Um, obviously, Trotta is not too far from, you're probably near Tara, I think, in Meath, which is probably about yeah. an hour in a car. And when I was growing up, I just remember, you know, going through rural areas in Ireland and the car would be covered in insects as we were driving through the through the rural areas. And now that's not not happening. And the research shows that um, I think it's 40 percent of all insects are declining and a third are endangered. OK, so there's there's a huge juxtaposition on where we've come from and we're not making the world a better place. And another statistic there was that in the 80s, there was maybe six or five or 600 um, rivers in Ireland that were seen to be pristine. This is, I'm quoting the Guardian here now, that was um, in one of your articles recently. And now there's only 20. So we're not making the world a better place. Um, things aren't getting better. Can you tell us a little bit more around the, the kind of decision uh, to pull back from the farming? So pull, mo- moving out of that kind of, you've had the conversations with the family, that land wasn't wasn't run by um, your family. A lot of it was from the locals in the area. Is that correct? Well, no. Well, we we were leasing a good chunk of it, but okay. we towards the, we we started with rental and we were transitioning into into partnering hmm. and ultimately with the idea of, of doing eventually taking over ourselves. But the problem was I was just not satisfied with what I see. I didn't buy into hmm. the status quo because I mean all those things that you just said. I 100% believe and agree. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure that those are uh, those are like the uh, those are the the better numbers. Yeah. I'm sure I've seen worse numbers than that. But the thing is, is that uh, yeah, I wasn't happy with that paradigm. I don't believe that we need to stick that many drugs into an animal. I don't believe because I, I'm a, a I won't say that I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I'm I'm a cynic when it comes to business. Hmm. Um, I'm not. Bear in mind, I'm not anti-business or anything like that. But I know what it's like when you have a business interest. And how how pushing a narrative is beneficial. Hmm. So you know it's in their interest to sell us, should we say, a narrative, so that we need more sprays, that we need to do these. When really, the biggest problem is 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 poor choices. Hmm. You know, it's like medication that like you should only take medication when you're really sick. Hmm. But the big industry wants you taking pills every day yeah. because they get paid every day. Yeah. So it's in their interest to say that you need a multivitamin rather than you just fixing your diet. You know yeah. what I mean? Fixing their diet doesn't give them any money. There's no money in broccoli compared to selling you something else that comes in a, in a pill, mm. you know? And that's the thing. When you have that, and they don't have your best interests at heart because these companies do not give a damn about you or me and they will uh, sell themselves in, into, into oblivion. But that's, that's you, can't, you can't blame greed 
because greed is 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 inert, inert, inert in all inert. of us. Yeah. The thing is, is that we don't have to subscribe to it. And the thing is, is that I saw the losses and I was watching the destruction of the land because the land was downtrodden. It was compressed. There was chunks of mud. There was weeds. It looked tired. And this is the prime land. And you know why it was tired? It was tired because it never got a break. Yeah. And then the farmer said to me, he was like, how we fix that? Well, we need to spray this. We need to do that. We need to. Yeah. That's what he, that was his solution. Well, I said to me, it's like, so you're, you, you keep kicking it while it's down. And then what do you do? You don't let it recover. You don't do some, you know, a more healthier approach. You spray oil-based chemicals on it. Yeah. Wow. That is madness. And then meanwhile, this man, you know, he was suffering from a neurological condition, you know, and I was thinking to myself, it's like, what do you think that came from? You know, exposure. Where do you think cameras. you're not even wearing a mask while you're spraying? Yeah, it's crazy. You know? Like you mentioned there about the the ground being downtrodden and stuff. And John Thackeray, who's a great friend of the podcast, um, he wrote a fantastic book about how to thrive in the next economy. And I've already mentioned John's work to you, but he he explains in the book that soil is finite. At some point, you're going to hit a threshold. And for centuries, we were putting cattle on the land and then we started to move towards big combine harvesters and bigger uh, machines that were adding extra compression to the soil. And the soil at some point will start, you know, decreasing its yield and how farmers are responding to that is they're adding more chemicals and they're trying to get as much out of it as possible because the margins are so low and we're in a race to the bottom when that starts happening. And I think there's a correlation between the volume of chemicals um, and we look at insects as being a, a byproduct of that, the, the sheer sort of destruction and decimation of, of level of insects in farmlands. There has to be a connection between those two worlds. So I guess my question to you now is um, when you stopped farming and the, the land was stopped uh, receiving this this level of uh, chemicalization, what did it look like when um, on the journey of exiting that world? Well, the first thing is what happened is the grass grew. The second thing is it got clumpy. The third thing is it blew up with, with dandelions, nettles, thistles, and the most worst of all, this evil ragwort, which is a weed, or they call it a weed. It's, it's kind of a, a, a flowering type weed. Um, that blew up, and it's 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 the kiss of death for land in Ireland. That's that's what they told me. What's it called? Ragwort. It's R- kind of like a long uh, tendon-like plant with has a yellow flower. Okay, it's kind of beautiful actually, but they hate it. And, I, and like all half truths, it was considered the enemy. Hmm. Now, what I've come to realize in my age is that when anyone tells you something is inherently bad, it's usually usually based on some level of ignorance. Because there's nothing in nature that belongs in a place. And bear in mind, this is a native thing. This is not some invasive species Mm. that came from Japan or somewhere. This is a a native Irish plant. And everything in nature works together. Mm. It's only when things start getting messed with that things go wrong. And ragwort is not something that has come from somewhere else. It, It was always here. And the thing is, is that all these things started exploding. And I wasn't willing to use chemicals. And at first, I tried to combat the weeds by you know, pulling them out and doing this kind of stuff. I wasn't really willing. I, my idea was to allow the land to, to, to settle. Yeah. So that meant allowing grass, allowing nettles and thistles to, to absorb all the chemicals because, you know, everything is like a sponge, you know, it absorbs. And over time, all these chemicals are absorbed into the plants 
you know, and they die back in and they eventually get, if you like, digested, hmm. you know. Um, but that's what happened here. So the place became like a, a, a complete disaster of nettles and briars and all that stuff. I, I would say it was one of the most beautiful looking things I'd ever seen, but it was also agriculturally dangerous for me because I could be fined for having uh, this kind of stuff really? in the country, which is ironic. Apparently so. It's the, under the Noxious Weed Act. Apparently, there is a, you can be fine. Now, good thing the council never really bothered to me with it, but uh, it was always a concern that we had that we would get into trouble. Okay. So I tried at first to, to deal with it in my own way in the most kind of, should we say, comfortable way, which was to pull it, hmm. right? Because it wasn't chemicals. I mean, you pull it out. You know, we're just giving the other stuff. Now, it, I totally failed because it would come back. Every time I pulled it, it more would come. So yeah. I did it for a year or two and then gave up. And so I said, I'll, I'll do something about it when the council comes. Yeah. And they never came. But ironically, what happened is the land cured itself because all those so-called noxious weeds began to disappear after about third or fourth year. Hmm. And not disappear completely. They just became less and less plentiful and other things started coming. Yeah. And, uh, and things became patchy. So I'd get a little bit of a section here. Then I get a little bit of a section of nettles. Then I get a little section of thistles. Then I got this section of wildflowers. Then I get ferns over here and then different types and colors of grass. And that's what happened. And yeah. then that became ever-changing. And as time goes on, I get more and more micro areas of one or two, maybe four or five different things growing in them. But nothing as time goes on, it there's, there's less and less uniformity to everything. Yeah. Even the land became a little bit more clumpy, which was ironic because when water came, I started noticing that the water was dissipating a lot faster. I'd get wet patches and ponds and little things like that, microclimates. Mm. It's very, very good. And like I said, water brings life. Insects bring more life. Yeah. And that's how it was working. And mm. I just kept seeing more and more things appearing. And you know what? It was all gorgeous. It was beautiful, the colors, uh, the wildlife. When I'd walk and just see thousands of of, of flies and, and insects flying over the tips of the grass, wow. butterflies everywhere. And then I'd see these birds flying in, swooping in and catching them. And the place was like the Amazon. You know, you'd hear, yeah. I'd be woken up at six o'clock in the morning by the little bastards making so much goddamn noise that it would wake me up. So although it was beautiful, it was also had its, had its drawbacks, like being woken up at dawn was, was one of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. You mentioned when we were speaking the last time that animals have started to reemerge from um the estate and i know i, I follow you now on, on instagram and i i see the hedgehogs and some of the photographs you have there the hedgehogs are in decline as well it's it's no surprise that most of these things that we we speak about are in decline and um walk me through what that was like and did you have to stimulate any of those things to try and encourage the the animals back or did it happen all organically well when i first started i i like every guy who's eager yeah i started with this idea like i was going to do this i'm going to do that and when you know i want to add this and i'm going to plant those and all that stuff hmm. which is is typical of someone entering a journey you have that enthusiasm you want to make everything move fast but it's interesting because i spoke to a scientist and he said to me you know and he was very very fatalistic about the thing he said if you create the habitat you allow the habitat to exist everything just comes hmm. And, you know, I've kind of said, it was like, well, that's not what you can sell people exactly. But the truth is, it's absolutely true. So mm. as time went on, I did less and less. I mean, we did small amounts of management. Of course, we we uh, we planted trees, for example. When I, we plant trees, 
I do a little bit of here and there. I, you know, I work with the animal hospitals. So when they have injured animals, uh, you know, we'll put them back into the wild hmm. because we have wild here. So if you've got injured hedgehogs, they're safer at Dunsany than they would be in a place where they're near roads. Yeah. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things. I was only putting things in that were already here. Yeah. You know, and a lot of these animals, uh, like the foxes, for example, they're territorial. So it's not like you're ever going to get an excess. I mean, they will get pushed out by their by their own competition. Yeah. And they'll move off. But the truth is they start in a, in a safe zone. Yeah. You have, um, you also have red deer. Uh, I saw that. We have yeah, loads of red deer. Okay, which is an endangered species in this country. Um, so, and you, well, they're, you're, not the, they're not the common species anymore because if you look around, most of the deer, it's the only native species we have because the Sika and the fallow deer are not from here. I think, I think one of them comes from, from Northern Europe and the other one comes from like Asia or somewhere, which is much must to have, my surprise. They must have got a Ryan Air flight today. They must have, yeah. <laughs> We'll blame Michael O'Leary for that. Do you know how they got here? I think they were introduced. Um, they were introduced, I think, both for, for, for pleasure. I mean, a lot of these these animals came in when, when, when people brought exotic animals in for, for, like I said, for hunting or for harvesting. Mm. And obviously they became part of the landscape, but they are not, they are not our natives. Yeah. The reds are our natives. And, and the thing is they behave differently. Their, their, their sizes are different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not against non-natives. I mean, I, I should always point that out. You know, if you want to go back, back far enough where none of us are native, you know what I mean? I, I read some some stories that actually Ireland was only a forest island and there were no people here originally anyway. And the the, the, the so-called true Irish were, were came from places like Scotland yeah. anyway. So, you know, I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. But the thing is, is that... um. Yeah, I, I think I think that they, their behavior is very different. Mm. If you if you look at how they behave, yeah, it's it's incredible to to hear that there's this place that's not too far from Dublin where, you know, we we don't have that much wildlife in the city where I'm, where I'm living, and it's you know thirty miles up the road, and there's this kind of haven of of life. It's fantastic to hear, but in typical you know, uh, a good example, should I say, of how messed up the human race is, you've had to go to war, I guess, um, with poachers and hunters we were speaking about beforehand, which is completely messed up when you think about it, because the work that you're doing to shine a light on this, amazing, it's an amazing story, but has only amplified the opportunity, I guess, for for people who are into hunting and, and poachers. Are you okay to talk a little bit more around what this looks like sure. at the moment for, for your life? Because it, so, it, it's a messed up part of the story, which um, unfortunately exists. You know, people ask me, though, you know, they say, what's what's the hardest part of Rewild and what's the hardest part of your journey? And I typically say to them, is like, people ask me, is it the money? And I'm like, no, the money, I can, I can survive with that. You know, I made, I made very harsh financial hmm. decisions. I don't walk around in the flashiest clothes. Hmm. I, I, I drive a very old car. Uh, I don't go on holidays. I, I budget my expenses very tightly. Mm. Um, I'm always about saving money and trying not to spend any money. And, you know, I'm frugal with things, right? I can live as a frugal lifestyle, mm. you know, and I, I believe that's a good a good um, homage to, to an ever-changing world that we cannot live the way we've been living. Mm. And I'm just fashioning myself to to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. But the biggest problem I had, it's not, it's not the money. It's not... Uh, problems with invasive species or the science or any of those things. 
it is actually the hunting community. That mm. is my number one biggest problem at Dunsany today and mm. have been my biggest problem and biggest time-wasting uh, part of my life. Because, and, and for your listeners who don't know, Dunsany was, when I took over, uh, it was a joke. There was people shooting here all the time. There was people going gallivanting on horses. Whenever a local um, like horse hunt would come, they would trash our fences. They would gallop across crops. They would they would absolutely and and when we were approached by us, we would be threatened and insulted, and they'd get away with murder. And you know when my dad died, I said I drew a line in the sand. Said, well, now it's my time. And you know what? The dark days are coming for these people because I'm I'm a very very vindictive person and very vengeful and um, and I said to myself it's like I'm going to win even if I have to absolutely pummel these people if I have to ruin every single day that they're here I will do that so I started you know they started poaching in the middle of the in the of the dawn so I turn up there at dawn and I'd I'd watch them and like a like a one of those. Uh, um, Scientologists, I'd film them doing what they're doing, making everybody uncomfortable. They'd be parked up. I'd roll up behind them and just watch them. I was constantly uh, battling horse hunts. I'd find out when they're coming, and I would be following them around and calling the guards on them the moment they cross into my place. Yeah. I, I tried calling the guards on them, had them you know, visit them a couple of times. Eventually, I tried to be diplomatic. They threw it back in my face, many of them. And then I started having to pull out more police and then eventually lawyers. Yeah. And I started, you know, recently I had to I had to put out a warning letter of injunction on the Meath Hunt, who mm-hmm. came to my property. We had a negotiation. We talked to them. I gave them the maps of my land. All my land, by the way, is, has got signs on it. Every year I have to put up fresh signs because these guys will shoot the signs off the off the trees. They will yank every single sign off gates. In fact, we started welding them to the gates. Yeah. So they'd have less. And you know what happened when I weld them? They got a crowbar and started yanking them off with crowbars. They're very eager to teach me a lesson. But, you know, like I said, uh, Dunsany can afford a lot of science. So yeah. we're going to keep doing it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the thing is, and I started doing these sorts of things. And, you know, as a result, I got pushback. I got, you know, people threatening to beat me up, threatening to set fire to my house, threatening to kill me. Wow. And, and cut my head off and stick it on a stick. I got threatened to get a Chelsea smile, mm. and then uh, as and they regularly call me uh, what is it Imperial? Well, Imperial C, which I won't say yeah. onto your listeners, but yeah. we Irish can know what the C word is. Yeah, they get I get called British British C word very regularly. Yeah, even though I'm not British, if you want to cuss me off about my heritage, you can at least call me a French wanker. Not <laughs> it just goes to show their level of ignorance, but. Yeah, so it got it went to war, and the thing is, I just became I up my game. I have to keep going. Yeah. So then, what I started doing is, I was started putting. I had to put up, you know, I I did this for years, and I had to put up bigger signs, the hardest and highest gates with mesh gates, and then they started filming themselves doing horse jumps over my gates just to show me off, and then tagging me on on social media. So I had to put barbed wire on the top of the gates to stop the horses or to stop people just climbing over them. You know, we've had people setting fire to trees. We've had people cutting fences just to be annoying. I've had, uh, like I said, I, I approached one lot who were getting close to slashing my tires once. Mm. And the guy claimed that he wasn't doing nothing, but he had, you know, he was getting ready just to slash the tires because my car is very recognizable. And now I can no longer park my car in the local town without parking it right in front of a camera. So 
it's it's crazy to think that this exists in a in a what we would call a civilized world but uh yeah. it it is it's something that um unfortunately you know it's taken up quite a lot of your life and your energy and it's not yeah. like you're I mean there's enough going you know, on there was about 36 calls to the to the police in 2019 in 6 months yeah 36 do you have any idea how much police time i waste yeah the cost you know it. and this as as a taxpayer you should be offended yeah because i mean that's wasting a police hours on on bullshit excuse my french yeah um and these people they don't have the right they've never had the right they they're abusers and like now i said the problem is with my world it, normally hunting season starts on the 1st of September. 1st of September is a lot like D-Day for me. I start going to war because I now have to patrol my property two or three hours a day, every day. And then on the weekends, even more. Yeah. And that's a huge, I have a, I have a young family. I have work. I have huge amounts of, of responsibilities. I have, you know, my next movie to do. And uh, this is what I have to do every, you know, it's like t- paying tax every, on my day, three hours a day. Because if I don't do it, mm. they will start seeing that I'm not as there. I'm not there all the time or my people aren't there all the time and they'll start abusing it again. Because in the old days, it used to be all the time. I used to hear gunshots every weekend and there were people coming on the land. We had people cutting trees down. You know, these people have been abusing us for years and I just drew a line in the sand. And the, and the thing is now it started early because we've already had one uh, report of lamping and a known poachers from other areas coming because of probably all the hype. Yeah. And the problem is what in, in, in my trials to try and get this place to be more recognized, to protect the environment. It's also opened me up to more problems from elsewhere. And it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, it's the cost of trying to be uh, a symbol of, mm. of change uh but the problem is it means more 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 enemies more problems so what, um, what can be done about this like for the people who are listening they're probably as equally horrified as i am to hear that this still goes on and it's it, we, we believe it shouldn't be a problem but what can people do and what can people like yourself do to to protect the land that you own in all fairness now the positive person in me says you know you can contact your local authorities, you can say, look, we want harder sentences. We want, we don't want any of this stuff happens because look, there has been gunshots. I mean, I had a window shot out. Hmm. Bullet hit my window. Lucky nobody was there. We've had uh, a shot that was fired. A deer was shot over my field, which is, you're not allowed to shoot near houses anyway, but this deer was shot. We were filming a movie around that period of time. Hmm. If the bullet had hit an international actress, and killed it. Can you imagine the scandal that would have been in the Irish film industry when the, uh, the American film industry would disappear out of Ireland if yeah. any actress was killed in a stray bullet shot? Yeah. You know what I mean? That That's the kind of stuff that would destroy the economy here in, in for, for film. So these things are happening every day. I don't think there is really much anyone can do because the laws are not really hard enough yeah. on people doing it. There should be no night shooting at all. I don't understand how the hell like night shooting is a thing. Yeah. Um, the guards, they're not around. And even if they are, I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's the law, unless the laws are there to seriously stop, uh, criminal trespass and all that stuff, which they aren't, it's civil trespass. It's Mickey mouse. So, Mm. you know, and there's no, there's not much will to fix it. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, for all my calls, you know, it hasn't deterred it. Yeah marginally deterred it maybe this year i'm expecting way more calls because mm. I, I like i said normally it starts in september it's already started yeah um well look 
Randall, I hopefully things um you know pick up and um you know you, you were able to come to some sort of uh, understanding and these people stop doing that because it's the work that you're doing and you're doing all this great work over here the land and the the animals and everything the insects are returning and then there's this other world over here that's in complete competition for it it's it just seems such a, such a shame to to shine a light on the on the two on the two stories um so hopefully it gets better for you um if people want to reach out to you and follow your story what's the best way for them to do that well, I've got a Facebook page. I've got an Instagram page. Uh, if you want to support me, mm-hmm. uh, one of the best ways to do it is to actually rent or buy my movie. Because the truth is, uh, the money I lose, I have to make up in the film industry. Yeah. And the, the profits to the film go back into the into the reserve. It helps me get pretty. It helps me pay uh, those things that protect. We spend a lot of money on trees. We planted 2,500 trees last year. I hope to be planting 3,000 this year. It's amazing. Ireland needs trees. Yeah. And your your movie, I should point out, is not like um, someone running around with a camcorder. You've got some pretty big actresses and actors in there as well. Like you've got Catherine Isabel from Hannibal. The TV series is one of the main actresses in the, in the, the movie. I'm going to rent it. Um, you know, I'm interested in the movie. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. So I'll throw a link to that into the show notes for the podcast. And um, I'll encourage people to follow you on Instagram and so forth. Um, but Randall, thanks so much for your time. And listen, thank you so much for, for featuring me. And if your uh, fan base ever wants to come, get in touch. We're not going to change the world as individuals. We'll change the world as collectives, and we yeah. all need to do our bit. And if even if, if you can't do much yourself, supporting the people who are trying always helps. Absolutely. Randall, thanks so much for your time. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. Now, if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.